Shared parenting does make it easy. I'm your host, Chris Batchelor, and this is the Parent Time Podcast. Parent Time Podcast is presented by National Parents Organization, a national nonprofit who is working hard to bring shared parenting nationwide. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Chris with National Parents Organization, and today I'm here with Joseph Goldberg, who's a recognized expert in parental alienation. Mr. Goldberg says that parental alienation is oftentimes better understood as parental rejection. He's a psycho-legal education and litigation support consultant, which means he provides continuing education to lawyers, mental health professionals, and to parents who are engaged in high-conflict, complex custody disputes that involve parent-child relationship problems. His divorce education programs are accredited in the courts in over 500 counties across the United States, and they can be accessed at onlineparentingprograms.com. Mr. Goldberg also provides litigation strategy and intervention recommendations to family law lawyers in court cases involving co-parental conflicts and children caught in the middle. He's the author of Parental Alienation and Children Exhibiting Visitation Refusal Behavior, which can be found online at Mediate.com and OurFamilyWizard.com. He is a member of the prestigious Parental Alienation Study Group, and he has a nationwide consulting practice for parents who are seeking help with parental rejection. His firm is called Goldberg & Associates, and he currently spends his time residing between Toronto, Canada and Winter Park, Florida. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. So you've, you've been in this business quite a long time and, and have a lot of experience. Um, and so we're really excited to talk with you today. And um, so I, I just wanted to start out, you know, what, what kind of got you in all of this, uh, you know, all this uh, sort of uh, working with parents and shared parenting and, and all that sort of stuff? Well, my, uh, the genesis of my interest in high conflict cases uh, started with the interest in parental alienation. Uh, back in 2009, I organized and hosted the first international conference on parental alienation with uh, all of the leading experts in the field. And um, actually, uh, my, my interest in uh, that issue um, started actually before the movement for shared parenting. But even at that time, I was hearing many parents complaining about their access and custody uh, problems in court cases, and uh, uh, many people at that time held the belief that if only there was a, a more equitable shared parenting uh, ruling in the courts, uh, it would abate the uh, the dynamics of parental alienation. So yeah, I'll go back to, you said it was 2009. That That's really the early days of when uh, I think people started to recognize that there was an issue with um, sort of an imbalance in custody in, in traditional court cases, right? Um, I, what were some of the things that you were seeing that, that really started that ball going? Well, you know, high conflict cases have been going on for, for centuries. It's nothing really new. But um, when Dr. Richard Gardner, uh, back in the 1980s, uh, sort of uh, got the ball rolling with parental alienation syndrome as a, a theory of parental alienation, um, this uh, launched uh, a whole new paradigm for parents to look at the cause of the uh, co-parenting conflicts and their, their parent-child relationship problems. And uh, there was not a lot of uh, attention 
until Dr. Richard Gardner started that uh, with the theory that there were eight symptoms that he identified as the somewhat definition of parental alienation syndrome. And over the years, so that is um, uh, changed to the term parental alienation because there, were, there was a lot of criticism about the theory. There was a lot of criticism of Dr. Richard Gardner. And so uh, to find a more safe harbor for the, um, the dynamic, they switched to the term parental alienation. But what that unfortunately led to was um, three or four different uh, definitions of parental alienation over the last 15, 20 years. And even today, there is really no universal definition for that term. So it remains somewhat ambiguous and controversial. Yeah, I know there in the beginning, there was a lot of resistance to it. I think now even still, there is some some resistance to parental alienation, right? I think uh, there's I've seen a lot of arguments where people say that it's just used as an excuse to try and get more custody. It's, you know, that sort of a thing. But um, over the years, have you seen that there's been uh, more of an acceptance that there is a problem with uh, with this sort of thing? Well, I suppose it uh, may depend on who you who you ask. Uh, there's there are some victories uh, with uh, the courts recognizing parental alienation. Uh, it, it, certainly the, the behaviors of a parent um, trying to uh, turn a child against uh, a parent they have a loving bonded relationship with for an unjustified reason is something that judges can appreciate even without the definition. Sure. So I want to talk uh, to you and, and ask you just, you know, get the ball rolling here. So, you know, why are parents having such poor outcomes in court? Um, and, and, you know, what can they do about that? Well, that is the, one of the most important um, problems uh, that really deserves a good answer. And I think that I could explain it this way. Um, you know, there's a, there's a very famous book uh, called The Art of War which many people have heard about. Oh, absolutely, uh, there's yeah. A, there's a quotation from that book that um, says every battle is won before it's fought. And what that means basically is that you have to plan to have a strategy that gives you every possible advantage to win. But that never happens in family court. And the reason that it doesn't happen is partly because parents, when they, they retain an attorney, they do so with um, misplaced trust and blind confidence that the lawyer has all the answers, has the plan. But unfortunately, the, uh, you know, the truth is the ugly truth is that the lawyers that even the most experienced lawyers um, in the large majority of cases have a very outdated schematic of the the best interventions and strategies to win the arguments and to, to place and track their clients into the correct interventions. But unfortunately, because lawyers are not really um, acquainted with some of the research, the more current research, I would say, um, they rely on what they know. They stay in their lane and Unfortunately, they, they steer people into um, strategies and towards professionals that um, are not competent, 
do not understand the factors that cause parental rejection. And so you get all these, these terrible outcomes um, because the clients really need to smarten up and they do not have the most important ingredient to win, which is they need to have an expert that understands these very complex and high conflict cases working in a capacity where they give the lawyer the playbook, the strategy, and they coach and they educate the lawyer step-by-step what they have to do. And even before you allow your lawyer to start filing petitions or anything with the court, there really has to be a, a, a period of weeks where you go through some roundtable discussions about all the issues involved in the case, what to do, what not to do, how to counter the next argument that the opposing counsel might have. And, and, and if you don't do those things, then you, you, don't give the, you don't give yourself the opportunity to test the competency of the lawyer, the cooperation of the lawyer working with the expert, because if you don't have a, a team that's working and pulling together and in a, a full agreement on the strategy before the case begins, there's no hope of getting a good outcome. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, lawyers know the law, right? But they, they aren't necessarily psychologists. They don't really know all of the emotional things that go on. Uh, and, and, uh, and let's be honest, they benefit when there's conflict, right? So they don't have a really big, uh, incentive to, to have low conflict, uh, in the cases, right? That's true too. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I'm sure that there are, uh, notebooks we could fill with all of the factors that contribute to why these cases go south. But if you want to focus on how to win the case, then, my suggestion to people is you got to find the right expert, the right consultant, get them involved in the, in the initial um, auditing of the uh, case before you retain a lawyer, maybe even let the consultant select the lawyer, pre-interview the lawyers, negotiate the lowest possible retainer. You know, these are some of the, the right decisions to make to win the case. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just kind of skip that step and they just go open the, the yellow pages up or look online and find a lawyer and, and, uh, they might, they might call the one with the nicest looking website and, and not really know, uh, you know, who's got the best skills for their case. Right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, people take advice, uh, that's uh, poor advice from friends, from family members, from social media platforms. Um, they get all kinds of, um, uh, poor recommendations. And, and at the same time, you really have to be empathetic of somebody going through this because they are really being pounded with uh, stress and uh, other factors that are compromising their ability to, to, you know, cognitively find their way through these problems in a rational way. And so they're they're being impaired by all these uh, stress factors. And, uh, and I, I can understand why many of them just want to throw their hands up and just throw it on the desk of an attorney and say, just, this is what I want. Help me. Just give yeah. me what I need. Just take care of it. Sure. Yeah. Now I want to go back to parental alienation and, and tell us again, why is parental alienation so controversial and, and what can a family do when there is parental alienation, you know, uh, present? Is there, is there kind of a right thing and a wrong thing to do? And, 
Um, and, and how do you identify it really? Well, you know, I, I've been an expert in parental alienation for, you know, nearly 20 years. And I am steering away from the term parental alienation because I prefer to use a different term, which is parental rejection, because that is a behavior that we can look at and understand and empathize with. Whereas when we talk about parental alienation or parental alienation system, uh, uh, syndrome, these terms are attached to theories uh, that not only are um, confusing people because the terms are sometimes conflated and sometimes they're conflated intentionally by professionals to confuse judges in court. And, and that's one of the weaknesses of parental alienation theory. Now, um, it, it's controversial in part because um, um, it's an untestable theory and untestable theories are difficult to prove. Nevertheless, uh, there are lawyers out there who are propagating uh, false narratives that they can prove parental alienation. And I, I don't wanna mention names, but unfortunately people wanna cling to what they believe. They read things online, they research things on their own, they're fully relatable to the experience of that parent and they grasp onto parental alienation and, and hold onto it tightly as the, the ex explanation for the child's rejection. Um, you know, parental alienation underwent a reformulation in 2001, uh, thanks to Dr. Janet Johnston, who did a, a benchmark article called The Alienated Child. It was the reformulation of parental alienation theory. Uh, more recently, there's been some splitting in the opinion of the experts. Uh, more recently, Dr. Craig Childress has uh, postulated this attachment-based parental alienation model, uh, also highly criticized. And so uh, it's really no wonder why um, uh, today there remains this ambiguity about whether it's a real thing or not a real thing. Uh, I can also say that um, I have spent probably uh, a lot of the time over the last three years working outside my lane uh, by reviewing uh, different journal articles in psychiatry, in medicine, and there are, there's new research that provides an explanation for parental rejection that is far better than the theory of parental alienation. And uh, actually I'm writing an article that I'm gonna be publishing on that topic, uh, hopefully sometime uh, this month. Well, we certainly look forward to reading that uh, when it comes out. I, you know, I, and I've talked to a lot of uh, different people in the field now, and it seems to me like there's really two areas um, that people generally have problems with. One is the is when a parent is intentionally trying to, um, you know, basically turn the children against the other parent, right? And then there's another area where it seems like people are unintentionally trying to, you know, they're, they're unintentionally turning the child against the parent. Is that is that kind of your experience too, or is that too simple of a way to boil it down? Well, no, not really. I think what you're touching on is, is something that's been discussed in some of the literature, uh, originally by Dr. Douglas Darnell. He was the first one to... Um, um, explain parental alienation 
in uh, the context of three variations of the types of alienators that, uh, that exist. He, he described them as naive alienators, in other words, alienating parents that that do things that are just dumb, you know, they say things out loud, they shouldn't, uh, you know, say in front of the children, then when you tell them what they did, they understand that they did something wrong and they can correct their behavior. Then you have the, uh, the, um, the active alienating parents, they know what they're doing. Um, they don't care that you don't agree with them, they just want to keep on doing it. They can only be stopped sometimes if you bring them to court and you can get a judge to issue an order to make them suffer some consequences and then they back off. And then there's the third type, which is the obsessed alienating parent. Uh, the only way I could kind of uh, describe them is like the terminator. You know, they will do what they want. The judge will write a court order, say, don't ever do this kind of thing again. The minute they walk out the courtroom, they are doing it again. Yeah. So those are the obsessed types. Yeah, cer certainly no fun if you've ever had to deal with uh, with that last type there. Um, I want to talk now um, and tell me, you know, what problems have people had with professionals in the court system? Uh, you know, I'm talking about your guardian ad litems, your parental coordinators, your custody evaluators, you know, those sorts of people that are, you know, they're not really lawyers or uh, judges, but but they're sort of legal professionals in the court system. Yeah, it's a it's a, a dominant problem for people, um, and uh, this is somewhat aligned with what I was saying earlier about how lawyers steer their clients into these false positive, hopeful interventions that only fail. And and part of the reason <clears throat> for the failures uh, from these professionals is that <clears throat> you know they're. There, there are some expectations that because of their education and training, they're supposed to stay in their lane. They're supposed to just do what they know. And there are ethical and professional guidelines that reinforce that standard. So they're not going to look outside their lane for research in other fields of science, psychiatry, medicine, where they might actually stumble upon something like I have, where uh, they find a better explanation um, you know, an, an alternative uh, treatment approach to a problem. And so you, you get people who um, are appointed sometimes by judges, other times by two lawyers getting together in the back room of a law office and saying, who do you like? Or, I don't know, who do you like? And they pick somebody out of a hat, doesn't really matter if they're competent, incompetent. Um, there are people that violate their ethical and professional guidelines uh, by practicing outside the boundaries of their core competencies, and they do so with the best of intentions, but that leads to bad outcomes. So they slither into these roles, and they, they digger away at uh, what they think they know will solve the problem, and it ends up in total failures. So. Now, before we got recording, uh, we had talked about some scenarios here. So I want to run through some of these with you. And the first one is, um, let's say you have parents that tried to communicate, you know, kind of in a civil way, but, you know, it kind of turns nasty whenever they talk, um, you know, and to make matters worse, um, you know, one parent is making all the decisions without asking the other parent, what should uh, parents do in a uh, scenario like this? I believe there's really only one correct answer to that question. And that is, you know, I would tell someone, you should run, not walk, don't procrastinate, don't hesitate. 
Don't give yourself any excuse not to look for a consultant or an expert to get involved, to have a consultation with, to lay out your problems and discuss what that person would recommend. That's the first thing that they could do right. Anything other than that is going to lead to poor outcomes. That's great advice. Okay. The second one, um, let's say you have parents with very limited financial resources and, and they have the you know, sort of just the worst conflict imaginable. Um, what should parents do in that case? Well, um, it partly depends on, you know, the individual, like, do they have the determination? Do they have the, the emotional energy uh, to pursue an effort to change the dynamic? Um, you know, there's another expression, you know, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And if you have the motivation, if you have the determination, even with very limited financial resources, there are many, many ways you could cobble together a strategy that should start with good advice from an expert, of course, but people can represent themselves they can hire lawyers on a limited scope retainer rather than have them represent them in court. They could get a lawyer to give them advice about how to prepare the, the, the documents, how to serve them on the other party, give them a little coaching advice on uh, how to represent themselves in court. There are paralegals that also prepare a lot of this legal work. Um, th there are a lot of things that you can do and um, you can get good outcomes even from a distance. So even if you're a parent that's being blocked from having any custody or access or any influence directly with the child, there's a lot of wonderful things that a parent can still do from a distance to help their children get the right services that they're going to need to be able to help themselves, to give them the tools that they need to individuate themselves away from the negative influences and power of a parent with a control agenda. Yeah. I think a lot of um, parents just really miss uh, calculate or miss, uh, or I should say underestimate the amount of financial resources it really takes to litigate a case properly. Right. I, and, and I think that's why you see a lot of parents uh, going through bankruptcy after divorce because they simply um, misunderstood really how expensive it is. If you're going to full out litigate uh, any sort of contentious divorce. True. Okay. The last one uh, I want to ask you about is uh, if you have an adolescent around age 15 that rejects a parent, uh, it's also self-injuring um, or if they're threatening to harm themselves and they're forced to see um, a parent that they do not see that they don't want to see, then, then what do you do in a case like this? So you've got a, it sounds like you've got an adolescent here about 15 and they're, they've got some uh, unhealthy, uh, you know, things that they're doing here. What, what do you do in that case? Well, that's a really important question to ask because so many people are um, really struggling with that one. You know, they, they want to see their children. They want to help them. They want to blame the other parent for most of the problem. Um, they understand the child um, is saying things that should be understood uh, very clearly as messages that they are in um, a very severe state of dysregulation. And so you shouldn't push a child uh, to a point where you force them to have to have contact with you 
if they're expressing feelings of suicidal ideation, threatening to run away, threatening to hurt themselves or hurt that parent. I mean, this happens. It happens off, more often than we like to know. And so there are some parents that are very persistent. They want what they want, and they don't think about the potential consequences, and sometimes it ends in real tragedies. So uh, I, would, I would say to that parent, back off, take a deep breath. There's lots of other ways that you can help your children, even if you're not seeing them, like I said a moment ago. Uh, but you really kind of need the right expert to, to help you navigate uh, so that you kind of are, are getting the, um, uh, the input from somebody who can tell you what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. Um, and if you put all your eggs in one basket with a family law lawyer, well, you might not even be able to get in touch with them during a crisis. So uh, you need the right advice when you need it. And that's why I try to suggest to people, find yourself a good expert, find yourself a good consultant, you know, let that individual fill a role that, um, even if it's not widely understood by family law lawyers, doesn't matter. You as the client need to take charge of your own case. You need to smarten up and you need to get in the game with the right professionals to help you. Excellent. And the last question uh, that I have for you is uh, what's the best advice you have for parents when they just can't agree and they think all is lost? I mean, should a parent give up in that case or, or what can they do? Well, you know, there's good reasons and there's bad reasons for giving up. Um, you know, I can, I can fully understand, uh, you know, actually, uh, you know, Dr. Richard Warshak wrote uh, an addendum to his book, Divorced Poison, recently, and he, he actually touches on this topic himself. And he says, you know, there are times when it is appropriate to just simply, you know, fold your hand, give up. You know, it's not, not going to go anywhere. Um, but on the other hand, there's too many people that give up prematurely and, and they don't really ask for the help that would lead them to maybe understand that there are still possible options that they could consider that would help their children. I mean, it may not achieve the initial objective of repairing the parent-child relationship. I understand that could seem like a very distal goal to accomplish. But the overarching objective here is to first help your children with the services that they need to get, even if it is over the objections of the other parent. Uh, because if you can track them into either the right therapeutic intervention or non-therapeutic intervention, that would give them the tools, again, I say to uh, withstand the negative influence of a parent, uh, to restore their critical thinking, to enhance their development, then you're doing wonderful things for your kid, even from that distance. So maybe you shouldn't give up before you talk to somebody and ask them to audit your current situation and give you their opinion on it. Yeah. I think it's definitely worth mentioning that, you know, in all the, you know, all these cases are, are, you know, very individual and unique, but, uh, certainly, um, you know, for each case there, there's going to be no singular wrong or right answer. Right. But 
but uh, you can certainly look at what other people have done and successes that they've had uh, and try and use that for guidance and, and what you should do in your case. Yes. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we uh, sign off? want to wish everybody a happy 2022. Let's get over this COVID thing. Definitely. Yeah. We want to living. <laughs> we want to go back to living and get that all behind us. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, let us know, uh, Joseph, where can uh, people reach out to you? I know you've got a number of websites. We're going to list those uh, all in the, uh, in the notes here. We've got your online classes at onlineparentingprograms.com. Uh, there's the CSPAS website, which is uh, www.cspas.ca. Uh, and then you, there's your uh, Goldberg and Associates website, which is parentalalienation.ca. Uh, can anybody find you on the social media? Uh, well, I have a social media page under Goldberg and Associates. Um, I also have a, a business page on Facebook for uh, Parental Alienation Consulting Services. Uh, but the, the primary website I would refer people to is the one that is parentalalienation.ca. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you, Chris. Have a happy new year. Happy new year. Take care. Now, that was recorded on video, so if you want to go ahead and watch the video, you can find the link in the show notes. It's on YouTube. And if you have any questions, you can contact National Parents Organization at sharedparenting.org. Don't forget to like National Parents Organization on social media. Just go ahead and do a Facebook search for National Parents Organization and smash the like button. You're also going to find several Facebook pages for different state chapters, so go ahead and like those pages as well. And don't forget, you can also follow National Parents Organization on Twitter or LinkedIn, the links to those social media sites are on the sharedparenting.org website. If you're passionate about shared parenting, the best thing you can do is get involved. And the best way to do that is by contacting your state chapter. If you head over to the sharedparenting.org website, you can find the links to your state chapter and then contact them directly to take action and volunteer. We could also use your help with donations. National Parents Organization is a nationally recognized nonprofit registered in Massachusetts. To donate, visit sharedparenting.org and click the Take Action and then Donate. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Tell us what you think on social media or by going to the sharedparenting.org website and sending us a message. Fill out that contact form and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear about what you think about the show or what you want to hear on the show, that sorts of thing. So go ahead and, and send us a message. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Chris Batchelor. Thanks for listening, and together we can help bring shared parenting nationwide. Stop.